0: hello and welcome to the do one better podcast in philanthropy sustainability and social entrepreneurship i'm your host alberto Ligi from london please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and please share widely with others it makes a huge difference indeed today it's really such a pleasure to welcome onto the show lord jack mcconnell who is a member of the uk house of lords he was a leader of the scottish government our first minister of scotland from 2001 to 2007 also leader of the scottish labor party during that time as well he is someone with a big heart does a lot of work in the sustainable area as well has a foundation that we're going to be talking about and we're going to be covering a few areas that will be of interest one of those is the cut in uk foreign aid from that 0.7 of national income to 0.5 which is in the news uh, right now We're gonna be talking a little bit about the work that Jack's doing in peace building and conflict areas, which I think is fascinating as well. And we're gonna get to know Jack personally. Uh, He's a teacher by profession and someone who cares about the world at large. Now, before we kick things off, a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at Quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Lord Jack McConnell. So Jack, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure.
0: It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Why don't we start just by the topic of the day, which is the, the cut in UK foreign aid uh, from that 0.7% of national income to 0. 05 What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, most of all, I'm sad. A, I'm, I'm a little bit angry, but I'm, I'm more sad, I think, than angry. And I feel for all those who are being faced this year with the ending of projects that are maybe halfway through. I heard this morning about a project in Afghanistan, of all places, you know, right at the top of the news this week. And yet in Afghanistan, you know, rural literacy project for women that has just had its funding taken away before the final year of the project. So the women who started a course which will help liberate them and help them build a democracy and a better society in Afghanistan in the face of the Taliban, are not going to finish their courses, and uh, this is just desperately, desperately sad. And you know, I think the UK—I didn't vote for Brexit, but I, I there was a bit of me could understand this vision of a global Britain and not just being so closely tied to the to the EU. But I, I don't think anybody, you know, saw that this is what it would mean. You know, that we we would become meaner as a society, and we would withdraw from our international responsibilities. So. I feel sad uh and and i think you know we now need to think about the longer term and rebuilding public support for uk development i think that's been missing in the last few years and we need to rebuild that support and and come back stronger and uh not just rely on governments but all do our own bit too
0: do you see the uh the aid budget coming back up uh from that 0.5 to 0.7 or or something higher even uh, in the foreseeable
1: future i don't think the chancellor has any intention of uh, in the aid budget, back up again. I think the tests that were voted through yesterday by the 333 or whatever it was MPs who voted for it. I think those uh, uh, those tests are designed to make sure we never get back to 0.7. Um, so I think this is. I mean, in, in some ways, it, it, it. I think it probably does break the law. Um, so it's still possible that there could be a challenge through the courts on this. Um, but I think now that those MPs have voted once for these uh, the, these savage cuts, uh, I think they'll probably be prepared to do it again. So I wouldn't be surprised if the government are able to change the legislation um, given that the president has now been set. I think it's terribly sad for the UK and its global reputation and for all the people who are affected by it. Uh, I, I really feel for, I feel for them, I feel for, you know, I can just imagine, I've, I've visited the education projects that we fund in Northern Nigeria where girls are in danger of being kidnapped from their schools because they go to school um, by, uh, by armed terrorist groups. You know, these are these are life-saving, not just life-enhancing, they're life-saving projects. And uh, I cannot imagine what it feels like to be in that situation where you've had a bit of your education, but the rest of it's not going to come forward because... The chancellor and the prime minister, sitting in an office in London, have decided to play a political game and pick a fight on this, just because it might help them win some votes in some key constituencies. Very sad.
0: I guess when you're when you're putting a face to it, it's it's very different than than looking at a black and white mm. Excel
1: spreadsheet. Absolutely, and the uh, you know, the UK does a, a lot of incredibly good work around the world. Some of the very best work that we do or have done is in the most difficult places. And it's not always easy to talk about. So when you go into Northern Nigeria or you go to Afghanistan or Northern Iraq, and you see the impact that UK aid makes, not just in its own stuff, because the money itself is not that huge really in global terms, mm-hmm. but it's the catalyst that UK aid, because of the, the level of trust and the reputation that we have, catalyst that is that it becomes to bring in other money from other places and to produce some stability in the development of education projects or uh, health uh, projects, or even economic development projects, which are in many ways even more important because they help people become independent rather than dependent. You know, I think to have broken that trust, that reliability of the UK is deeply damaging. It's damaging for the people who are affected and their human rights and their personal development and their, their freedoms. But it's also, I think, deeply damaging for, for our reputation as a country. And that's that's very sad. Yeah.
0: Now, one of the things um, you hear quite a lot about is about, yes, okay, there is this cut from 0. 0.7 to 0. 0.5. If we're looking at the global ranking, as if it were, in terms of percentage of, of national income that's being granted as foreign aid by other countries, okay, you have Germany and, and France who are up there. But countries like Canada, Japan, and certainly the US are well below that. 0.5 um any thoughts on that and where should we be optimally I mean if you were controlling the whole thing should we have it at 0.7 would you have it a,
1: at a different level well I think I make three quick points about that one is that every other g7 country is increasing this year not decreasing so if there was ever a case for the UK to decrease it's not in the year of a global pandemic and the most important climate change summit since 2015 so you know, it's a it's it's terrible timing, and it's in the wrong direction uh, when others are going in the right direction. Secondly, I think while the UK has been ahead of some of the other leading uh, democracies, that is not a bad thing for our role in the world. You know, we have I, I think we have obligations given our colonial past to places that are underdeveloped. I think we do have historical obligations, and one of the ways that we meet those obligations is to be involved um, in uh, aid and development. But we're also, as a country, good people with a good heart, and we are, you know, we we recognise the need to support those in need. And then the final thing I would say is that the long-term objective is not to have zero point seven percent GNI in UK aid to the developing world for the for the rest of time. The long-term objective, and I've actually supported the Conservative government in some of the ways in which they've changed the spending on aid to meet this objective, Uh, the long-term objective is to create stronger economies and public finance systems in the most underdeveloped countries so that they can stand on their own two feet and not uh, depend on us in the future. And, you know, that's the, but you can't do that if you chop and change your policies and you promise spending at a certain level and people plan ahead on that basis and then you cut the budget by 30 percent overnight just to play politics and that's the tragedy of this you know a, there was a long-term strategy it wasn't perfect but i think the uk was actually pushing the international community in the right direction and saying that economic development the business environment investment the need for good management of public finances building the capacity to do all these things that was a bigger priority in the UK than probably most of the other developed democracies for our aid. And we've just cut all those budgets. Just at the moment when countries in various continents were making real progress on these, uh, these moves towards independence, not dependency, and to pull the feet from underneath them when they were making such progress is it's, it's cruel. And it's, uh, as I said, earlier, it's very sad.
0: And not possibly not good business either. In terms of investing, you, you touched on it. In terms of uh, investing for sustainable development, and, and briefly mm. the, the, the private sector, I know that's that's a topic that's close to your heart as well. Maybe you you know your assertion might be private business is perhaps a little bit further ahead
1: than government when it comes to this. Uh- oh, absolutely, the um, uh, when the sustainable development goals were agreed in 2015, they were. Markedly different from the Millennium Development Goals that had preceded them. And the Millennium Development Goals were really about the developed North in the world giving more cash to the underdeveloped South in order to have more primary school places and some better health provisions and some more clean water. But the Sustainable Development Goals changed the whole strategy. And they recognized the importance of governance, for example, and conflict prevention and building strong democratic institutions as building stability for development, the famous words of Nelson Mandela, no peace without development, no development without peace. They recognise the importance of infrastructure, of skills, training, of economic investment, of the business environment. So not just talking about education, health, water, the key provisions of life, but dealing with these wider issues so that development can become much more sustainable. I think government's with a, one or two notable exceptions, maybe Germany and Japan and other parts of the world, Colombia, one or two others. Most governments have been behind the curve on this in the last six years. But large parts of the private sector, particularly global multinationals, have really grabbed this agenda. And I'm I'm actually quite heartened by that because that's where the money is. It's much, much more money invested in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, by global multinationals and global banks and financial services firms than by governments and development aid. And if we can get that money to be better spent, get the supply chains delivering good jobs, giving training, looking after the environment, and so on, operating without corruption, paying tax locally, then that's the way to really change the world, in my view. That's the biggest change that can take place. So I I totally applaud those manufacturing multinationals the big financial services companies that are now on this agenda and I just think government needs to take a look at that and a look at themselves and catch up catch up fast. Would you say the, the corporates are leading the way? Absolutely the best corporates I mean there are some bad corporates but the the best multinational firms and now the best financial services firms are right on this agenda and they are driving it down through they're not just greenwashing as we, as we say they're not just you know putting out the nice statements and putting out some nice words on the website they're actually driving it through the supply chains and the best financial services firms fund managers and so on are now starting to look at where they put their money and put you know real strong conditions on that and that is a that is a direction of travel that is i think becomes irreversible and that is the way to to create sustainable economies real sustainable development around the world where people themselves benefit in their own localities but also companies benefit from proper sustainable long-term investment that helps them grow over years and not just have boom and bust
0: in terms of catching up where is it that they can catch up or where should they be focusing on is it the uh regulatory
1: framework? Is it the incentivizing um you know I, I think incentivizing I think tax frameworks, um global not just global tax rules, but national tax rules as well, tax frameworks and, and incentives, I think in in trade agreements, but also just in terms of leadership. You know, if it, what's to stop the leadership of, for example, the UK government having a national business council that is focused on delivering the SDGs at home and abroad. You know, that's doesn't cost anybody any money. That's a good thing to do. To to provide the weight and the strength of leadership that the government can provide is a good thing to do. And there have been, you know, there have been the occasional business summit and so on as as part of the response to the pandemic and talk of build back better. But let's, I mean, in this first country, for example, why don't we create a national uh, SDG uh, business council? You know, where the government the government would be would be sitting in the chair and listening to business, doing things that help business deliver on the SDGs, but also making sure that they can uh, they can catch up as well. Why doesn't the government have a national government forum where the prime minister, the first ministers of the devolved nations, the the big metro mayors, you know, sit down and agree a strategy to deliver these SDGs inside the UK? Why are the SDGs not front and centre in every single aid uh, investment that we make through our aid budget? You know these are basic questions that are not difficult for government to answer but they it's been a it's been a lazy approach not just by the party in power at the moment in the UK but I think my politicians of all parties uh I think they've been slow to see the the uh the potential of this agenda in a way that I don't think the private sector have been slow. I think the best people in the private sector absolutely get this and uh they are far ahead of the politicians at the moment.
0: Hmm. You quoted Mandela a little bit earlier, mentioned about peace and development, and, uh, and you touched on conflict. I know your foundation, the McConnell International Foundation, peace building is one of those things that, uh, that is one of your focus areas. Give us a little bit of a flavor for what's going on, because obviously you can't have international development if you have people, uh, you know, huge numbers of refugees, uh, displaced persons, conflict that's in perpetual motion.
1: Well, as a foundation, we've supported we support education projects in the developing world generally, but we we have particularly supported education for refugees. And uh, you know, if you've ever visited one of the big refugee camps, you know, for example, in northern Iraq or some very very big camps across uh, sub-Saharan Africa as well, uh, and you go back again, you know, you go go once, and then I always like to go back. You know, you go back and you see just what little progress is made in terms of education provision for for these kids who can spend years living in these camps. and, and So I think that's, that, that's a critical provision and one that I continue to, to advocate for as well as try and support financially when we can. But I also believe very strongly in supporting good governance. In most conflict situations in the world today, the conflict is between a majority and a minority inside a country. The only solution to that conflict is political. And a political solution normally involves giving people some kind of empowerment. And there are very few international organisations that support sub-national government that is emerging from, from, a, from a conflict scenario. So if, a, if there's a peace agreement that agrees that an area will have some autonomy and will have their own government and parliament in their region or their you know, historic national area, then uh, there's not really a, na- a global support network for that. Uh, because the global support tends to come to fully fledged states that are members of the of the United Nations. So, for example, in the Philippines, I've been supporting now for seven years the, the Bangsamoro peace process in the southern Philippines. Forty years of conflict, hundreds thousands of lives, cost uh, massive underdevelopment in the in the Bangsamoro region. And the but the leadership of the, the former rebel group, the the Moro Islamic uh, Liberation Front, committed to the peace process. But inexperienced in parliamentary politics, so I've been using my experience as a first minister in Scotland. I've been helping them over the years prepare for this democratic parliament they're going to have uh, for the elections that will come up. For the, the, the just last night, I was reading they have a local government code in, in draft form for the relationship between the new devolved parliament and the uh, and the local government units in the region. It's about 200 pages long. I was reading it last night and preparing some advice on it. It's, uh, you know, uh, probably it feels like the, one of the most worthwhile things I've done in the last uh, 15 years. And uh, I think the people involved are good people in the main and they, they want to do the right thing. But they benefit from having you know somebody that they can consult with and, and chat to about it. And I had people like that when I was first minister that I enjoyed their experience. And um, I'm very happy to share mine.
0: Mm it's unfair to ask you to choose but based on your experience and your expertise and what you can leverage most to make most impact going forward is the governance piece arguably where you would see yourself now and
1: in the the forthcoming years really well I think good I've become more and more um strongly committed to the idea of uh, actively promoting democracy and democratic institutions uh the rule of law um over the last Twenty years, you know. I think we're in a bit of a battle around the world between those who believe in democracy and the rule of law and those who don't. And I think we need to stand up for what we believe in. So, I'm absolutely convinced of the need for uh, those of us active globally who believe in that to uh, to be more vocal and better organised. And I welcome the fact that, for example, President Biden and others seem to be engaged on this uh, and alert to. It. I think the Japanese now are as well. And there's scope for global alliances on this. But I've always believed, and I, and I believe this passionately, that education and learning mm. is the greatest liberation for the individual. So while good governance and democratic institutions and the rule of law are vital for society and for countries and for sub, you know, sub-national entities as well, uh, I absolutely believe in the power of education as the greatest liberating force and... Uh, you know, I'll fight for education till the day I die. I, uh, you know, that that spark that a teacher can light in a uh, in a pupil, the incredible feeling of release and knowledge that can come from a young person learning something new for the first time and wanting to learn more, or even just the basic capacity to have skills for every day in life. You know, and the way that that helps people survive, never mind thrive, just so vital. So. To me, education will always be my number one passion. It was what I, when I was seven years old; I wanted to be a mathematics teacher. That's what I became. And today, I might not be teaching in the classroom anymore, but I still love going into the classrooms, and I, I'll fight for education till the day I die. Absolutely, I have to embrace
0: what you're saying there very much. I think the power of education, SDG four, for all of those who, who may not know invaluable absolutely invaluable so you're speaking like a former teacher perhaps one is never a former teacher you're always a teacher once a teacher (laughs) absolutely absolutely. very much a vocation exactly and your your journey is remarkable i mean so here we have a school teacher who ends up who ends up leading the scottish government who ends up in the house of lords who ends up who knows where in 10 years time Uh, give us a little bit of a flavor for that journey that personal
1: narrative uh, not always easy to explain, I don't think. Um, I am quite unusual, I think. They, uh, uh, there are not very many senior Labour politicians in the UK who, in fact, in most countries, actually, who whose father was a shepherd sheep farmer, grew up on a sheep farm in the middle of nowhere almost, uh, and then was a mathematics teacher. It's a pretty unusual uh, uh, journey into uh labor politics maybe all of all, all politics when i was growing up in the hills i wasn't really interested in the farm i was i was determined from a young age to get away from that lifestyle i i could see the toll it took and how hard it was and i was convinced by my mother and my aunties that uh passing my exams at, at school was the way to get uh, get out and get on um but i also did a lot of reading and i read about the world uh, i i developed an interest in that from quite a young age. So I was fascinated by what was happening around the world. So I suppose a lot of my um, uh, my convictions, my passion for what I do politically and through the foundation has come from those early days. Uh, so at that time, I felt, I mean, I remember as a teenager feeling that education was really important, although I was a bit badly behaved at school. I didn't believe that education was important, but I was interested in what was happening around the world and peace and uh, inequality and these kind of issues as well and maybe the two were linked uh, i remember watching the soweto school massacre um in south africa on the tv and being astonished that black kids were basically slaughtered by the police for marching for their education um so there were probably moments like that stuck in my mind as a young kid so then pushed my horizons a bit wider than the classroom uh-huh. And then you know I love being a, I mean I loved being a teacher and I I'm still in touch with quite a lot of my former pupils, uh, you know, Facebook and so on has been an opportunity over the years to to make those old contacts. I know some of their journeys, I know where they came from, um, I know what they were like in the classroom when I first met them, and I'm chuffed as anything about where some of them ended up. There was one one girl in particular who I thought was you know a bit more capable than she thought she was, and I worked hard with her to get her to pass her maths exam uh, back in the day she was pretty reluctant convert. <laughs> but she went on and studied accountancy at college. And she's now director of finance, one of the biggest firms in Scotland. And uh, she signs multi million pound deals. Um, and so that, I take a lot of pleasure from that. But I, the classroom was never enough for me. I was always wanted to go a bit further. And I wanted I didn't want to be part of the system. I wanted to run the system.
0: What was that like? Because in some respects, you could say you were running the Scottish government, you were, you were running the
1: system. How was that? It came out much earlier than I expected it to, but, you know, it was a fabulous privilege. I am proud of what I did when I was there, what my team did. I had good cabinet, good people all trying to do the right things. We made some significant changes in Scotland, some of which have been reversed by our successors. That happens in politics, but many have not been. I'm proud of some of the stances that we took. We started the process of taking a more positive approach to immigration in Scotland, uh, for example, and and a more hostile approach to sectarianism, religious sectarianism, which had been a bad problem in Scotland for a long time. And those two issues, you know, still the work we did on that, I think still has an impact in Scotland today, um, many years on. And we were ahead of the rest of the UK on banning smoking in public places. And that has undoubtedly saved thousands of lives in Scotland. And uh, you were taking the lead on that, if I remember yeah yeah there was um there, there was a lot of uh debate and division at the uk uh, level on what to do in england and wales and uh i was persuaded i was originally a skeptic but i was persuaded by uh, uh one colleague in particular um that i should go for it and by the many young people I met who all were in favour of it, I have to say. Uh, we had a big consultation and every single young person was very strongly in favour of a ban, and that, and that, that had an impact on me as well. But then we had incredibly good execution. I mean, the original decision, you know, I'm happy to take the credit for but I didn't actually execute the decision. It was my health minister, Andy Kerr, who was outstanding, and his team of civil servants and health officials, and they got the legislation right, they got the public messaging right, it made a good comparison to today in the last 12 months. It was consistent, it was clear. And we went from a country that was reluctant to, to back the ban to a country that I accepted it the day it came in. And uh, there were no incidents, no arrests uh, on the day it came in in March 2016. And I'll be forever very proud of that. Mm.
0: A little bit, uh, slightly different topic, uh, but still connected very much unfair perhaps to ask you don't have to answer but where do you see things playing out in scotland i mean are you feeling optimistic that the union will be the union that um...
1: well i think the the country is clearly divided and it's divided because uh, in the main i think divided because those who believe that a united kingdom of some sorts is a sensible arrangement for government across these islands have i don't think been able to put across a positive case for that for the past decade maybe even longer and i think that's i think that's at the heart of the problem that currently exists the level of support for independence is broadly between 45 and 50% it, it, there was a period last year when the uk government was making a complete mess of covid that support for independence went higher for for several months but it's pretty consistently between 45 and 50% But the debate will never go away unless those who support the idea of Scotland being inside a UK framework and not leaving it, and who are able to not just articulate, but practice what we preach in having a better UK government in the way that it relates to the different regions and nations of the UK. And the UK government has basically become divorced from Scotland over the course of the last 20 years. And there needs to be a massive programme of re-engagement, listening as well as acting, and UK ministers need to make themselves relevant in Scotland again. Not by pushing the devolved government aside, but by in their own departments showing an interest in Scotland, and that's not been the case uh, over recent years. And I believe very strongly that, that 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 is an absolute prerequisite for support for Scotland remaining in the UK increasing. Mm
0: so that's scotland on a serious level now if we take scotland on a less serious (laughs) level or perhaps arguably even a more serious level a, a favorite single malt oh
1: i am actually personally not much of a whiskey drinker um but if i did drink whiskey i would probably follow my uh my father's example he was never too keen on the on the island mops, he was always more keen on the space side mops. Um, so I'd probably go in that direction rather than uh, rather the islands, which is strange coming from an islander. Uh, but then but then life is strange. That's good. Uh,
0: so we're running out of time, but I always like to ask, what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind
1: after they finish listening to today's episode? It might seem obvious on a show which is about people listening, um, as well as somebody like me talking. But I think listening is my key takeaway. The best decisions I have made in my life, I have made with conviction and determination, but I've made after I have listened. And I think uh, the single greatest quality that leaders can have, but also that people can have in their everyday life is the ability to listen. Some people are more decisive than others after they listen. And that's the nature of human, the human race. That's fine. I'm happy with that. Some are more inclined towards decision-making and leadership than, than others. But if everybody listened a bit more, we would be much better. I love it. I love it. Absolute
0: pleasure hosting you on the Do Want Better podcast today, Jack. Really great insight. And um, I wish you good luck with the work of your foundation. And the insight that you
1: shared with us today has
0: been wonderful. So thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much and you know i think uh, you've covered an incredible range of people on your podcast over the <laughs> over the last period and uh um, you know i think it's great I, I, you know we can't we can't have enough public discussion of these important issues and people's life experience and um you're contributing to that so well done and uh, thanks for having me on perfect and
0: that's a wrap You've been listening to Jack McConnell, Lord Jack McConnell, member of the UK House of Lords. For a full transcript of today's conversation, just visit our website at lidji.org. that's L-I-D-J-I.org, where you will also find information on more than 100 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders. Thanks very much for tuning in today. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and I'll catch you next week.